we're going to talk this morning about Psalm 51. And if you go, Faith, to the next, to the title slide, just so we can read it together. Everyone wants to talk about this today, I'm sure. Confrontation, confession, and grace. So let me, let me take a quick poll of the, of you guys this morning. How many of you have ever done something bad? Thank you for your honesty. You didn't have to raise your hand. I already knew. <laughs> Follow-up question. Who determines right and wrong? You, you've said you did something bad, something wrong. Well, how do you know that? Who told you it was wrong? Who determines right and wrong? Sometimes we feel guilt. Sometimes that is a guilt that leads to repentance, and sometimes it's not. That can't be our only driving force. God determines right and wrong, doesn't he? There is a higher power, a higher authority that determines the law. It's good that we can admit that we've broken God's law because the text this morning really bears that out. Here's another follow-up question, but tougher than the first. How many of you like your sin being pointed out? Don't raise your hand because nobody wants to. Here's where we start to kind of bristle at this whole thing sometimes. The idea of being confronted about our sin because it's it's one thing to say that we have sinned because every one of us, you know, we're raising our hands. Non-Christians, people that don't know Jesus, like they will usually freely admit they've messed up. They've done something that they shouldn't have done. But when you start saying, please hold me accountable for that sin, call me out when I'm not doing the right thing, eh, that's where we start to back it up a little bit. Psalm 51 comes from that kind of a place. Maybe you knew this. Um, probably if you look down in your Bible at Psalm 51, there's a title that's usually there. And it says that it's a psalm of David, and it's written after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and then after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan. So odds are that you know the story of David and Bathsheba. So we're not going to go through all of that again. But before we read Psalm 51, I do want to go back to 2 Samuel and look at the interaction that David had with Nathan. Because it's important for how we read Psalm 51. So if you could keep your finger in Psalm 51 if you want, but turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're just going to read the first 10 verses and then jump to verse 13. This is after David and Bathsheba and that situation happened. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. If you don't understand what's happening, he killed, he stole and killed the poor man's lamb, who was like a daughter to him. 
Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now jump down to 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David's sin, though forgiven, had dire consequences. And it's out of this situation that Psalm 51 is born. That Psalm 51 comes from. Now look back at verse 14. There's a lot more going on in this story than we're going to talk about today, to be sure. But you can see the ripples of this sin in David's life. It says you've, he has utterly scorned the Lord. When you guys admitted to sinning earlier, I don't think any of you are, are guilty of what David is guilty of here. Adultery, murder. But even if you are, Psalm 51 is something that you need to hear this morning. But let me offer just a a caution before we get into it. When we read a challenging passage of Scripture, especially one about sin, it's always tempting to just kind of project this onto somebody else. You, You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Boy, I'm really glad that they were here to hear this message. You know what I mean? And it's it's sort of funny, but when it's like your spouse sitting next to you and you're thinking the whole time, like, I'm really glad they're here to hear this. Like, there's a temptation to do that. Thankfully, I'm not sitting next to my wife, so she can't elbow me today. But, like, that's a temptation. We, we project the meaning of this onto somebody else, and we kind of lose the effect that it ought to have in our own hearts. So don't read this text or listen today with this in your heart or in your mind, you know, don't work really hard to pluck the speck out of your spouse's eye while ignoring the plank in your own. Instead, I want to remind us of a word that y'all are familiar with, change. Change. I don't mean pocket change. I don't mean coins. I mean change. This word, I think pretty fittingly sums up the Christian life. Change. The Bible teaches that the power of sin has been broken by the work of Jesus Christ. But you know what? That presence of sin still remains. The good news is that it's being progressively removed from the life of a Christian. God is changing every believer in this room. 
every believer in the world, God is moving and changing. The Bible has a specific word for this. It starts with an S. Anybody know? Sanctification. Sanctification. There's something about sanctification that you have to know, though. And my guess is, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you already understand this. Sanctification is not always easy. It's not always pleasant. If Christians are honest, they would admit that sanctification is a process that is a struggle a lot of times. It's really just a series of things. It's a series of admissions, admitting I'm wrong, confessing it, God correcting us, disciplining us, and then restoring us. And it's this kind maybe a cycle you want to call it, but it's this progression towards Christ-likeness. Remind us of Hebrews chapter 12, 10 and 11. He disciplines us for our good, talking about God the Father. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Are we being trained by the discipline and holiness of God? If we aren't receiving this, if we aren't being trained by it, Hebrews 12 also tells us that we don't belong to God. God doesn't have children that he doesn't discipline. We need to understand that. We've heard that before, I think. But God doesn't have any children that he doesn't discipline. God's children are in a constant state of loving and corrective discipline in a process called sanctification. Now, how many of you guys have ever played a sport? You can raise your hand on that one. Don't be ashamed. Ever, how many of you guys have ever learned a new skill? Maybe you've learned to cook or learned to woodwork or something. Did you, day one, let's just take basketball practice, for instance. Day, first time you ever pick up a basketball and go to practice, did you know how to play the game right? Were you the best at the game at your level? No. Of course, not even Michael Jordan, who was one of the best of all times, was good right away. I think the story goes that he was cut from his first high school team or something like that. You're not perfect at something right away, right at the very beginning. You have to be taught and you have to practice in order to get good, in order to be able to compete well. When you were born, you didn't have the knowledge, the ability, or the desire to live a life of righteousness that's pleasing to God. That, too, is something that has to be taught. That's something that has to be practiced in fact, if you just glance down in Psalm 51, verse 5, you'll see that you started out in this world fully entrenched in sin, not doing good, not pursuing or desiring the things of God, not desiring holiness, not desiring purity, not seeking after righteousness. We start this life with a sin nature that must be changed by God himself. Children are absolutely a blessing, but they have to be taught to know and love God. Parents, Christian parents especially, we, probably the most monumental and important task we have is training our children in the ways of the Lord. 
They're not born to do good. They're not born to do the right thing. You guys, I see some of you smiling because you've worked with kids. You have kids. You understand. They start and continue in a very selfish mindset until they're corrected out of it. We have to teach and train them toward holiness. This doesn't stop when you get progressively older by age, does it? Adults who've known Jesus for a while, it's still a training process. He's still bringing us along. He's still correcting and teaching. Now, if you look at the first 12 verses, we're about to read all of them in just a moment, but the first 12 verses you'll notice of Psalm 51, this is a confession of David. We've seen the confrontation with Nathan. If you think about that scenario, David could have had Nathan dragged away and killed. He could have, who are you to talk to the king this way? Get out of here. So David has now been confronted and now he's confessing. And my guess is along with words like patience and submission, confession is not a word we like to use or do very much. It's just not something that comes natural and we don't like to practice it. But I think we'll see in Psalm 51 that in reality, confession is freeing. If you think about the relational difficulties that you've had with people in your lifetime, you probably understand, probably even identify personally, that a lot of the energy in those relational difficulties is spent making excuses and being defensive. That's what kind of our natural bent is towards. Maybe it's not that way for you, but that's kind of too often for me. And even when I, even when I, we've reached the point in our conversation where I recognize that I'm wrong, I still fight to win. You guys identify with that at all? Maybe not. You know, even when I realize I'm wrong, I'm going to dig my heels in because I don't want to lose the argument. But that's, honestly, that's a joke. Like that is, foolishness because pride doesn't win arguments it ruins relationships confession though it changes things confession flips the script if you will it's an evidence of change in a person's life it's so easy just to dig your heels in and to stonewall and Even when you know you're wrong, it's easy to do those things. But if the people of God would respond in a biblically healthy way to their own sin, imagine what that would do in our marriages, in our families, in the church, in our community, in the world. Now let's get in and let's read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open up my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, Lord, may this morning and your word in your people move us to change. Not just change for the sake of change or or change as an outward lie where we don't allow you to work on the inside, Lord, but genuine change that leads to progressive sanctification, more and more being molded into the image of your Son. God, if there is sin in our hearts, let me rephrase that, Lord, because there is sin in our hearts, we need Jesus desperately today. My hope and my prayer, Lord, is that you would convince us of that without question, but then you'd also give us a solution to it. Lord, don't leave us without hope, but teach us your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I read an interesting uh, kind of quote about this passage this week. I wanted to share it with you. Sets things in good perspective as we start off this morning. It says this, you can't grieve what your heart hasn't seen. And you can't confess what your heart hasn't grieved. You can't repent of what you won't confess. And it's only when your eyes become open to your need by an act of grace that you begin to confess and seek the help of the Savior. And that moment when God opens your eyes and you see the depth of your need, that's not a moment of tragedy. It's a moment of kindness. It's a moment of rescue. David gets it right in Psalm 51. His kingship won't help him avoid dealing with this problem, this sin. His family heritage can't save him from righteous judgment that's come and coming. And his army won't be able to protect him from the consequences of his actions here. There's only one place that David can run to for help, and he realizes it. He sees it. David knows that he has to run to the very person who he so desperately wants to avoid. Isn't that how we are? When our sin has been revealed to us, when we recognize that we've done something wrong, we don't want to go to the person that we've hurt. That's the last person that we want to talk to. Think about Old Testament. When the people of Israel were bit by the snakes, what was the solution that God put in place? To look to a snake on a pole. That's, if you've just been bitten by a poisonous snake that will take your life if you don't, if you aren't saved from it, the last thing you want to look at is another snake, right? 
And that was God's solution. Why? We find out in the book of John, just as the snake was lifted up, so Jesus was lifted up. And so, when we feel the sting of sin, the last thing we want to look at is Christ on the cross. Because it's a visual reminder of our sin, the consequences of our sin. We don't want to admit the tragedy that our sin brings about. And so we don't want to look there. We avoid it. But to be saved from death, we must look to Jesus. We have to. To be saved from the snake bite, the Israelites had to look to the snake on the pole. We have to look to Jesus on the cross. But the scary thing about this, about sin, is that a lot of times, sin doesn't look that sinful. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? I think this was probably going through David's mind without him realizing it when he was looking down on Bathsheba taking a bath. In that moment, the lust in his heart, he did not recognize the tragedy that would come as a result of that innocent little sin. He didn't see it. He didn't see sin for what it was. It didn't look that dangerous to him. And he didn't understand the disaster that was going to fall. Kids, when you choose or when you're in the moment, are you going to obey mom and dad? Or are you going to disobey? You may not realize the danger that's right underneath the surface there. You may think, I'm in charge of myself. I'm old enough to make this decision on my own. I don't need to listen. I, I can make my own decision here. Sometimes we get this feeling of being our own authority. Of We get this feeling of um, you know, being the one in charge. And it makes it exhilarating to some degree. And we say, I'm going to make my decision here. And we don't see underneath the surface the danger that lies there for disobedience. Sin looks attractive and desirable. We discussed this a little bit last week, but when you hear the newest, juiciest bits of gossip, it's exhilarating to call someone and be the first person to dispense that information. There's weirdly some kind of pleasure that we get out of doing that. And yet, sin looks attractive and it looks desirable, but there's danger just underneath the surface that we don't often see. If we're going to see sin for what it really is, God has to be the one to show it to us through his word, through his people, because otherwise we won't face, we won't face it. We won't face the truth because we're, we're constantly fighting against owning up to our part in our problem, aren't we? If you're married, you understand this. No, no argument is ever 100% one person's fault. It just isn't. You're two sinners saved by grace in a relationship, but you're still sinners. And so there's still a mutual headbutting and a problem that comes, but we don't like to own up to our role in it. By God's grace, though, David doesn't deny his part in the problem. At least what we have recorded in Scripture. He doesn't deflect and blame somebody else. He doesn't defend himself. 
He doesn't even try to justify his own actions from the text. He just pleads with God for forgiveness according to his steadfast love, God's steadfast love. Now, obviously, David had failed. David had blown it in his resolve to do what was right. But God never does. God never fails. And so if you look at the first three verses, David uses three different and powerful words to describe the wickedness of sin. In verse 1, he says transgression. In verse 2, he says iniquity. And then in verse 3, he says, he uses the word sin. So I just want to briefly talk about the differences here because there are different words in the English. There are different words in the Old Testament as well. Transgression, the easiest way that I come to understand it is, is kind of like trespassing. It's going somewhere that you know you shouldn't go. It's doing something that you know you shouldn't do. It's knowingly stepping over God's boundaries. And we don't think much of it doing this because we think, well, gosh, I'm in charge of my life. No one's going to tell me what I can and can't do. So just fill in the blank of whatever sin it is that you're thinking of. But most of the time, we know we shouldn't go there. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't look at this. We shouldn't read that. We shouldn't say this. Most of the time, we understand that. We know we're going past what we should, and yet we trot right along to it. We know it's wrong, but sin looks appealing enough that we abandon truth and justify our actions to make it seem like not as big a deal as it really is. This is what David calls transgression. It's basically just outright rebellion when you get right down to it. Knowing wrong and doing it anyway. Then he uses, in verse 2, uses the word iniquity. This word goes beyond, I think, just this, uh, the actions and captures really the deficiency of our very nature. It's not just the wrong things that we say. It's not just that we do wrong things or think wrong things. Guys, it's that we are wrong. We're wrong. I am wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong inside of me that makes sin, sin seem desirable and causes me to justify my sinful actions. I've heard it put this way. I'm not considered a sinner just because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner. See, one gets to the root of the problem here, and this is why we need a Savior. This is why we can't do it ourselves. No one can be good enough. You can't shed this iniquity by yourself because it's woven into the fabric of your nature, of who you are. Again, skip down to verse 5. This condition is from conception. You don't have a choice in this. So in regard to the sinfulness of mankind, really Psalm 51 settles the nature versus nurture debate. There's really no argument here. It's your nature. It's in your nature. David isn't saying that his parents were sinning because they had him. He says, in, in sin, my parents conceived me. He didn't mean that they were sinning when they had him. He's saying that his sinful nature was sinful before he was born. That was That described him. So whatever you want to call it, original sin, total depravity, whatever you want to say about it, the reality of it is taught right here. It's like David is just admitting, and not only have I sinned this once, 
but I am in my very nature a sinner. And we see this displayed all the time. But we don't always want to say that's what it is. And I think, and I would say, that it's unbiblical to teach that a person learns sinful nature simply by observing people around them. That's wrong. We are deceiving people to say that. Because if that were true, if you could isolate someone away from every bad influence, then in in that theory, they would grow to be a perfect, sinless person. There would be hope that if you isolate them from everything else, that they might be able to be a perfect, perfect kid, morally equipped to live a perfect life. It can and it won't happen. It can't and it won't happen. Even the most remote places of the planet where social media isn't a thing, where they don't get to see all the horrors of the outside world, what they're doing to one another, even in those remote places, wrongdoing still occurs. They're isolated. They're not seeing it from the rest of mankind, and yet people still argue and fight and do one another harm. Now, certainly we're influenced by what people are doing around us, but we repeat them because it's in our nature. Paul explains this pretty thoroughly in the book of Romans. He says that sin comes through Adam and death comes through sin. And because all people sin, all people will die. That is the condition of mankind. Then he says in Ephesians chapter four or chapter two, he actually uses the word nature. And he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and by nature, children of of wrath. So David and Paul agree in this. Guys, you don't sin just because you need to try harder to be a better person. You sin because it's in your nature and you need a new nature. It's in your heart and you need a new heart. You need a new purpose. And all of those things are given to the one who cries out to Jesus to save them. They get a new heart. They get a new purpose. Now, the third word in verse 3 that David uses is just sin. It's the general term for missing the mark. You've probably heard the verse from Romans 3.23. Our Awana kids are asked to learn that as one of the first things that they do. And it says, for the wages of sin... I'm sorry, I was quoting a different Romans verse. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've heard this described as kind of like an archer who pulls back his bow and aims at the target and constantly misses the bullseye. And that's true, but I think it's actually more than that. I think it's actually worse than that. It's like an archer who pulls back his bow to launch the arrow and his arrows never even get to the target. They can't even get close. They fall short, right? It says fall short of the glory of God. The arrows just fall short of getting anywhere close to how we should live and how we should be. Your best effort in hitting the bullseye will always fall short. It falls short of God's glory completely. Guys, sin does this to us. It leaves us unable to live up to the standard that God has. Despite our best efforts, we can't get there on our own. Apart from the rescue of Jesus, we cannot just be better people. 
We can't just get our act together. Apart from Jesus saving us and giving us a new nature, a new heart, a new purpose, we're going to remain resistant to change and resistant to the need for confession and repentance. How many of you ever gotten a splinter in your foot? That's not fun. You get a splinter in your foot and you don't, you're not able to deal with it right away. Every step you take is painful, right? Your foot is crying out. There's a problem here. Fix it. <laughs> your body's designed to work that way, right? Because then you can address the problem, get out the, get out the, the thing that's causing the problem, and then you won't get infected and get sick and possibly die, right? So that's your, not that you die from the foot splinter necessarily, but untreated little things become big things that cause big problems. So when you get a splinter in your foot and your body is crying out and saying, you need to fix this, that's not a pleasant experience. It's not a, you wouldn't consider that a joyful thing. Oh, I got a splinter in my foot. It hurts every step. Fantastic. So happy. But is it helpful that your body is responding this way? Is it necessary that your body responds this way? Yeah. Because if it didn't, then you wouldn't know there's a problem and you wouldn't deal with your problem. So when our sin is revealed, we can respond to it one of two ways, kind of like a splinter. When our sin is revealed, number one, you could admit something is wrong. You could confess it. You can submit yourself then once again to the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And then there's confession to the person that you harmed that's involved in that too. That's option one. Or when your sin is revealed, you can respond a different way. You can ignore the pain, attempt to justify what had happened, and then just get sicker and sicker. The truth is, as David says here in verse 3, our sin is always before us. It's always a problem. It's always needing to be dealt with. And if we attempt to just handle it ourselves, guys, it will handle us. We're not equipped to deal with our sin on our own. David also then recognized that every sin against another person is ultimately a sin against God himself. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This verse reminds us that we can't sin against someone who God created without sinning against God as their creator. Do you see the connection? So he says if God were to judge him in that moment, David knew any punishment, any judgment would be justified. He's right. God would be right to deal with us according to our sin and what it deserves. Because we've sinned against God. Now I've referenced verse 5 a couple of times. Uh, but verse 6 should call our minds back to really what we discussed last week. Look at verse 6 with me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Right, last week we talked about how we have to, to speak truth in our own heart before we can speak truth to somebody else. Same thing here. God delights in truth. God's truth, make sure it's not 
Man's truth, God's truth is what he delights in. And so we need to be speaking that truth to our own hearts. Say it again like we did last week. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we need it every day. Multiple times every day. Now verse 7 mentions hyssop and it has this throwback to um, Old Testament ceremonial washings. The priests use it with, with water to ceremonially wash people. Um, in the Old Testament as well, you remember that at the Passover in Egypt, the Israelites were asked to put the blood on the doorpost using a hyssop branch. These things have to do with be, being clean, of making something clean. Also in the Old Testament, it has to do with like being healed from a skin disease like leprosy. But David doesn't use it as a physical cleansing here. In verse 7, he's asking God to cleanse him spiritually as he confesses his sin. David understood in some way that only blood could wash him clean. Think about that for just a moment. We sang a song that talks about that. He paid it all. David knew that only blood could wash him clean. And he understood, I think too, as verse 8 will say, that he understood that sometimes drastic measures needed to be taken to bring him back to God. Look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Who broke, who broke the bones? God did. Brothers and sisters, God loves you so much that sometimes he will break you to bring you back. This isn't punishment. This is discipline. This is grace in your life. And look at what it produced for David. This is wild to me. In the end, David says that it brings joy and gladness. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Remember Hebrews twelve eleven, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Is it possible that the discipline of the Lord will produce gladness in your life? Is it possible that the person confronting you about sin is actually God's way of bringing you joy? I don't think it's possible. I think that's part of God's design. That God would use discipline to bring us gladness. But in the moment, we don't see it that way. Brothers and sisters, we're also told don't despise the discipline of the Lord. If God is disciplining, disciplining you through His Word, through His church, through His Spirit... Don't despise it. Don't run from it. Don't stonewall. Don't justify. Don't do the things our nature would call us to do. Go to the Spirit. Go to the Lord. Look to the cross and be saved. Now, verses 9 through 12, they wrap up David's confession. And these are some of the most familiar verses of this chapter. We've sang them Already today, praise the Lord. When his sin was found out, notice what David prays for. And I just want to hit some of these quickly. Compare this 
to your own prayer when your sin has been revealed in whatever fashion? Do you pray this way? David prayed that his, he says, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of my salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit. Is that what we pray for when our sin is found out? Not normally. Usually we justify and we defend and we deflect. It's not what David does and it's not what we ought to do. The hardest thing to do, I think, when we've messed up is confessing that to the person that we've hurt. And that includes God, as we've already said. But we usually avoid those earthly relational conversations as long as possible, don't we? So much so that sometimes it just gets even more awkward when we haven't said what we've needed to say. That's not the way it ought to be. Just like David realized that the one he should run to is the one he wanted to avoid, most of the time when we've hurt someone, we should go to them, not avoid them, not away from them. We should run into the presence of the Father, not away from it. So there's a a path here that I noticed as I was studying this week that leads to something. Specifically in verse 13. The result of genuine confession and then faithful forgiveness from God is clear. And it's this. Share it. In verse 13, it says, I'm going to teach it. Verse 14, David says he's going to sing it. And in verse 15, he's going to declare it. So confrontation of sin leads to confession of sin which then leads to teaching others how to avoid the sin of the goodness of God. God's faithful forgiveness leads to excited evangelism. Isn't this wild? That God could use confrontation in your life to lead to evangelism? This is what it says. David knew that even even though his sin may disqualify him from teaching the saints. He knew that he could come along sinners like himself and teach them the way of the Lord and that God would use it. He says that many will return. Sinners will return to you in verse 13. Even his own fall might mean the restoration of others. Christian, does the reality of God's forgiveness motivate you to teach his way to others? It did for David. I think it should for us. I hope that we, like David in verse 15, would pray, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's not the first thing our minds run to when our sin is being brought before us. But I hope and pray that the Lord would change our mindset on this. In verse 16, David realizes that God was looking beyond just the ritualistic symbols of the sacrificial system. And just like whenever David was chosen as king, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. This was Jesus' words to the Pharisees so often that they didn't get God isn't so much concerned about the outside as the inside. 
That's why he called them whitewashed tombs and explained how to wash the cup the proper way from the inside, not just making the outside all pretty. Your heart is what matters to God. The motivation behind what you do is what's so important in all of this. And more than outward rituals, what God really wants, as we see here, is actually a broken spirit and a contrite heart. I I tried looking up this word broken spirit and tried to make it mean something that it, it just doesn't mean. I wanted it not to mean just crushed and, you know, totally at the mercy of the person, but that's what it means. This is what God says he wants from his people. A crushed spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The word heart here means more than just your physical heart. You guys get that. It's more than just the thing that beats blood and pumps blood to your body. It refers to instead like the core of who you are, the motivations, what makes you tick, the seat of your emotions, where your thoughts come from. That's what he means by heart. I think what David is conveying here is he doesn't just want a broken spirit. He actually wants a moldable spirit. He wants a heart that cares about the things of God. It's not just that you've given up and you've surrendered in brokenness. It is that, but it's not just that. It's that we're ready now and willing to obey. If you've ever trained a dog or an animal like that, you may understand this. You have to get to the point where they're not just not doing the bad things that they shouldn't be doing, but that they're ready to now change, have their behavior change into the right way. That's, I think, what David is getting at here. Charles Spurgeon said that a crushed heart is a fragrant heart. As verse 8 said, in God's hands, brokenness is not a negative. It actually brings gladness. And in reality, humility is what God wants for his people. Humility is what God wants from his people. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in Our line of thinking today, could God's grace given to the humble be someone confronting you about sin? Could that be a grace? Could confessing actually be a grace in our life? Could it actually be freeing? The last couple verses here, 18 and 19, they help us understand the effect that David's sin had on those around him. He realized that his sin didn't just only make him fail as a man or a husband or a father. He really also failed as a king over God's people. It was a big deal. It would come out in later years even more what had happened in this situation. But it was a big deal. And so when David says, build up the walls in verse 18... I think he's just pleading here with God to restore and fortify the kingdom according to his own good pleasure. Save the people who I have failed, Lord. Rebuild what I have torn down because of my sin. Then when God is the rightful ruler and everyone sees him as such, then and only then will the physical offerings mentioned in verse 19 actually be meaningful because it's kind of confusing in verse 16 and 17. He's saying that he's not going to be pleased with an offering. He wants a broken and a con- broken spirit and a contrite heart. But then in verse 18 and 19, he says, you will delight in right sacrifices. So what's the difference? I think the difference is 
what's primary and what's first? Are they right sacrifices or are they just ritual? Friends, do you come to church to stamp your pad? I did that for the day. I did that for the week. Or is your motivation to come and commune with the Lord and to be with his people? He doesn't want just lip service. He doesn't want just ritualistic sacrifices. He wants your heart. Then, when he's got it, then those offerings mean something. Then those sacrifices are important. They're helpful. And so when sin is dealt with properly, worship is meaningful to God. Jesus says as much in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There's an order of events here in the mind of Christ that we don't often pay close attention to in the church and in our relationships. Friends, Psalm 51 shows us how God uses the hard things in life, even mistakes, even confrontation, to mold us and shape us more into the image of Jesus. That's the point. Romans 8 tells us that's what we were predestined for, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. God uses confrontation and confession to do that. He uses those things to lead his people to share truth with others and to give them a humble heart that actually, truly, genuinely worships God. So when you feel the pain of conviction, maybe a spouse points out your sin to you, maybe a friend comes alongside you lovingly, points it out, when you feel that pain of conviction... Don't try to ignore the pain. That splinter will get infected, spiritually speaking, and it will cause sickness. Don't ignore it. That's God's grace to you to show you the need for change yet again. You also don't need to wallow in guilt or hide in shame. God knows you. He knows your heart. Instead, run into his presence. The one who we naturally just want to avoid, run to him. Which is so much easier said than done. But only there can you receive real forgiveness and his empowerment and his deliverance. Remember the word that sums up the Christian life? Change or the biblical word of sanctification? Are you committed to that? Do you understand that your life is is going to change. As I've gotten older and gone through the steps of, you know, high school, college, having children, all of those things, you always tend to think, well, as soon as this event in my life is finished, well, then things will settle down and I'll be able to do such and such. You guys understand this. You never get there. That point never comes. So we have to be committed to change now. It doesn't matter If we've got vacation in a week, it doesn't matter if Christmas is in a a month. It doesn't matter if whatever, do what God calls you to do now. Speak against the sin in your own heart now with his word. This reality of sanctification 
Does that pop into your mind when maybe someone is talking to you about sin? Probably not, but I, I would pray that the Spirit would help that to be the case. If you're committed to change, then you're going to be committed to humility and will actually see confession as freedom. Confession as a grace of God. I think God will open our eyes to it. I think He will bring the painful joy of brokenness in sanctification. Let me say that again. God will bring the painful joy of brokenness into your sanctification. He will help you see the danger and sinfulness of sin so that when you see it for what it really is, you can run from the sin that so easily entangles and to the loving arms of a father who wants better for you. He's not waiting just to judge you, though he is the righteous judge. He's waiting and calling to all who would listen and offering forgiveness and restoration and a new heart and a new nature. And in Christ, we have all of those things when we put our faith in Him and in Him alone. As we get ready to sing our closing and reflection song, I'd encourage you to think about that. Do I see confrontation and confession as a grace of God? The brokenness of discipline, do I see that as something that could bring me joy? God can open our eyes to it. And if we've not put our faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. He's calling to us through his word this morning. If you've not put your faith in Christ, during this song, come up and talk with me. We'll talk right here. We'll set up another time to talk. But don't let today go without thinking about your relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is hard because we don't like being told that we're wrong. Our very nature, in fact, spurns against it. it. It bristles at it. And yet, in reality, Lord, it's your kindness that has to grant us repentance because otherwise we would just stay in our sin. Content to go back and forth between feeling maybe some guilt about it, but then just keep on doing it. But Lord, in Christ, there's freedom from that. We don't have to only have that as our end. Lord, we can be confronted with our sin and forgiven of it because of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to look at him again today. Lord, I'm, I'm, sh I'm confident that in this place there are friends like me who, who wrestle with sin day in and day out. And it's not always for lack of trying. Lord, we want to do what's right, but... Lord, we rely on our own goodness so often. We try to pick up that bow and aim for the target. Sometimes we even take the arrow and run up there and try to stick it in there ourselves. Lord, that's not how it works. Every effort of our own falls short of your glory. And so God, convince us of that so that we stop relying on ourselves and throw ourselves completely onto Jesus, knowing that it's only in a relationship with him that we can have forgiveness and freedom, reconciliation and purpose. Lord, give those things to your people today. Thank you for this message that is not fun or easy, but is needed, Lord. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in, in everything, Lord, we need to understand confrontation, confession, forgiveness, 
truth and the grace and freedom that come in giving it all to you. Do that in us today for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.